This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be diving into energy giant ExxonMobil. The origins of Exxon date back to John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Exxon was spun out in 1911 as the Standard Oil of New Jersey. And in 1998, Exxon merged with Mobil, which was the original Standard Oil of New York. To break down the rich history of Exxon, I am joined by Arjun Murthy, a longtime energy analyst and investor. During our conversation, we dive deep into the super major business and how that drove Exxon's century-long success. We address the past decade of underperformance and examine the key drivers of ExxonMobil moving forward. Arjun gives helpful overviews on how the energy market has changed across fossil fuels and renewables throughout our conversation. I hope you enjoy this business breakdown of ExxonMobil. All right, Arjun Murthy, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thank you, Jesse. It's a real pleasure to be here. Super excited to dig into this behemoth today. We're talking about ExxonMobil. Let's just start the same question I always do. What is ExxonMobil? Give us a sense for the scale of the business and what makes them up. So Exxon has long been the largest, most substantial, most significant publicly traded oil and gas company in the world. And so when you think about the global oil business, there's a large number of state-owned companies, Saudi Aramco, the Russian oils, Chinese oils, and that's actually over half of world oil supply. The other half comes from private producers, of which Exxon has long been the largest, most successful of that group. Today, they're a $250 billion company. They have about $250 billion in revenues, $50 billion of EBITDA. But this is a company that really started, its legacy goes back to the original Standard Oil, founded in the late 1800s, 1870 or so, John Rockefeller's company, Standard Oil, got broken up by the U.S. government in 1911. That was the Standard Oil Trust. And from that came Standard Oil of New Jersey, which was Exxon, Standard Oil of New York, which was Mobile, Standard Oil of California, which is Chevron, and so forth. Exxon, more than any of those other pieces, if you will, was really Rockefeller's standard bearer. And when you think about that, this is a company that dominated the oil industry at its founding in the late 1800s and dominated through World War I, through World War II, through everything that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. When you think about that, how many companies in how many different industries do you think will dominate their industry for 150 years? I mean, as great as say Apple is as an example, I think they were founded in the 1970s. Do we think 25 years from now, they're likely to be the dominant temp company? Maybe they will be. But what about 125 years from now? So when you think about Exxon's history, it really is a remarkable history of adaptation, of change, of being profitable, of being successful, and really dominating the energy business. 
I want to go back to that history in a couple of questions, but just to kind of size them up a little bit. So 250 billion in revenue, 50 billion EBITDA. How is the business divided? What are the kind of different business lines they have at a high level? And what are some other metrics? How many barrels of oil or what are the right ways to kind of just understand the huge scale that this business is? So Exxon is what is called an integrated oil. And within the integrated oils, they are considered a super major, which as the name connotes is one of the largest companies out there. So as an integrated oil, they explore for and find oil. They go out and get leases. They drill wells and get the oil out of the ground. That is the exploration and production business. You explore and then produce it. You may acquire acreage, acquire assets, but it's all within that exploration and production business. For industry overall, that tends to be the bulk of where value creation is today. That is where you can be very differentiated in terms of where you are on the cost curve and profitability. And for Exxon, as I think for many companies, it's anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of their value. After you explore and produce it, you put it in a pipeline, you send it to a refiner. So no one except a refining company demands crude oil. So everyone is familiar with the oil price. It's quoted in WTI terms here in the US. It's on our screen today, $69 a barrel. The international price is called Brent. It's $71 a barrel. When people think of the oil business, they think of the oil price. But of course, crude oil in and of itself is completely a valueless product. So what an integrated oil will do is they'll take that raw crude oil and turn it into a usable product that we actually want. So refining business breaks down the crude, turns it into gasoline that we use to drive cars, diesel fuel for trucks, jet fuel for airplanes, and so forth. And ExxonMobil is an integrated player, does all of those things. Exactly. They pull it out of the ground, then they refine it into these different endpoints, and they deliver it ultimately to the customer. Right. Through gas stations, and the marketing business, corresponding outlets for trucks and the airline business and so forth. They also, though, take some of those feedstocks and turn them into petrochemicals, ethylene, polyethylene. These are products that are everywhere. The clothes you're wearing, a lot of the materials you see. What's unique about the oil and gas business is it is part and parcel to everything we do. If you drive anywhere, if you fly anywhere, if you get Amazon deliveries to your house, the clothes you're wearing, the plastics that are used in hospitals or in grocery stores or in packaging, all of these contain fossil fuels. That is why it is such a challenge to transition away. Business has been honed over hundreds of years. It is very efficient. It's very low cost. And it is something that heretofore society has been unable to do without. How would one think about the scale of ExxonMobil? Like how many cars are using their gasoline or just give us a sense for how many people it touches on a regular basis? So Exxon today produces 2.3 million barrels a day of crude oil. That's actually similar in size to what Kuwait, Iran, it's a little bit less than United Arab Emirates, but they're an OPEC country-sized producer. It's about double what Libya produces. It's 50% more than Nigeria. So when you think of Exxon, you can think of them as sort of a nation state in and of itself. And they're a very large natural gas producer, 9 BCF a day. They've got refining capacity actually in excess of that crude oil capacity. They're one of the largest refining companies, one of the largest petrochemical companies. You think about companies like Dow Chemical and DuPont, they would be competitors to those, all housed within Exxon. Yeah, I'm not familiar with what a barrel of oil generates in terms of, I don't know, gallons. I, I would know gallons of gas because I still have a car that takes gasoline or give me a sense of how to translate that into something a little more tangible. It's funny. So oil analysts 
they probably speak least about gallons of gasoline. By and large, oil companies don't actually own their gas stations anymore. They tend to get franchised out. And so one of the least impactful prices to an oil company actually happens to be the gasoline price you see on the street. Now, the buildup of that is the crude oil price that they receive. There's 42 gallons in a barrel, but I'm not sure it gets you a more relevant number. Maybe another way to ask the question is 2.3 million barrels a day. How many human beings in the US do you think that's impacting? Global oil markets are 100 million barrels a day. Um, Exxon's about 2% of that, uh, 2% market share, if you will. It's a pretty competitive business. There are literally thousands of oil companies, most of which most people have not heard of. A giant company like Saudi Aramco of Saudi Arabia, they are 8 to 9 million barrels a day. So the most important oil country in the world, Saudi Arabia, has an 8 or 9% market share, if you want to think about it that way. Okay. No, that's super helpful. And you mentioned they're an integrated player. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the supply chain works in oil and gas and maybe specifically why they've chosen to be an integrated player versus not? When the business was founded, again, hundreds of years ago, there was a relevance to being integrated. So there was not some great network of supply chain. There was not many different companies you could sell your oil to. And so you had to build the business up in an integrated manner. And I think in today's developing companies, whether it's in the tech space or so forth, you see the benefits of being integrated. Those benefits don't necessarily exist anymore for an oil company. You don't have to own a refinery to get your crew to market. You certainly don't need to own the pipelines to get it from point A to point B. Very few companies, again, actually own their gas stations. So Exxon's integrated nature is a little bit of its legacy What they have shown is that they've historically been able to be profitable by being integrated. It's not a prerequisite anymore, but again, they are in all facets of the value chain. Most companies are not anymore. So just to understand a non-integrated supply chain, just walk us through the pieces of it. Where does it start? What are the various players? If you assume the business wasn't integrated, what would the different pieces look like going all the way from the ground to a a customer experiencing it? I'd say that especially publicly traded equity market cap will be in the exploration and production parts of the business. And this is kind of the sexier, more exciting part of it. You go make a big oil discovery. That historically was an exciting development. When people talk about shale, as an example, the Permian Basin, or whether you're fracking, this is all part of the upstream business, exploring for and producing oil and gas. And it's the area where you have the opportunity for the greatest value creation. So you might just pay thousands of dollars and it may even be millions of dollars for a parcel of acreage. It can have, if you discover oil that did not know was there at the time, billions of dollars of value is really the ultimate. Now, there's a lot of capital that goes into developing, drilling wells, building infrastructure and so forth. But the opportunity for the greatest value creation is in the upstream part of the business. And that is where you see most of the publicly traded companies. That would be historically Apache, Continental Resources, Pioneer Natural Resources, Occidental Petroleum. These are US examples. They're examples in other countries. That is the most exciting. Those are the companies most directly impacted by the ups and downs of oil prices, as an example. If you were to double click on that one more time, what are the elements of a successful exploration business? What's the day-to-day look like for someone doing that upstream function? The oil business, and this can be both good and bad, is a very capital-intensive business. So it's always a question of what kind of revenues are you generating relative to your operating costs versus especially the amount of capital you had to pull into it. And so 
it can be hard for people not in the oil business, but the cost curve in the oil business can actually be quite steep. You might need, for example, only a 30 or $35 oil price to generate an acceptable return in some fields. In other fields, you might need a $70 oil price. Why would that be? The oil might be harder to extract. Or maybe you paid a lot more for the acreage in the first place. You bought it from somebody and paid a very high price for it. The productivity of an oil well, how much production per well can vary greatly amongst these fields. And then companies themselves have very different capabilities. And it's the steepness of that cost curve where you have the opportunity to be better or worse than another company. Do they win by analysis and like research or do they win by being better at physically extracting the product out of the ground? It's actually all of the above. And so when you think about the oil business, it really is remarkable that there is this resource underneath earth that you cannot see with the visible eye. And you have geoscientists and geologists who go out there, they map the earth, they study the ancient history of the earth's formation over literally hundreds of millions of years and try to do analysis on this is where a bunch of plants and other organic matter might have died a long, long time ago. And after years of, I'm not a geologist, so actual geologists will forgive the terms, but years of pressure and compression have transformed that organic matter into crude oil or natural gas. And then they stick a hole in the ground, that's drilling the well, and they say, did we or did we not find oil? And of course, simply finding oil is not enough. It has to flow out at some rate. And there's a whole bunch of geology and physics that goes into how robust the oil flow is. Clearly, a well that produces higher rates, generally more profitable than one that produces at lower rates. That is the opportunity of the business. How has technology impacted the exploration and discovery of oil? It's impacted it in a massive way. So when oil was originally found 100 years ago, you would see natural seeps coming out of the ground and someone say, hey, I'm seeing some oil seeping out of the ground. Maybe I'll drill there. Now people use complex seismic modelings. You stick rays into the earth, it bounces back, it hits things when it bounces through the earth, and you try and map the earth. And so using complex underground models to try and estimate what are the properties of the underneath of the earth to get to whether you find oil or not. All sorts of modern technologies used quite extensively in the oil business. And has that changed the capital profile of the exploration business? Like, is it easier now because of technology to find the places to drill so you don't, you know, you're smarter about what you buy or is it still a guess and test kind of a business? There's always a guess and test element to it. But what you find is increasingly harder to get at oil reservoirs become increasingly accessible within the range of oil prices thanks to technology. And so fracking, which of course is both been a huge miracle to our country, but has some controversy as well. It's one of those technologies that was first used in the 1950s. It really wasn't commercialized in a major way till the shale gas boom of the 2000s and then the shale oil boom of the 2010s, the past decade. And so this is something we've been doing for 50, 60, 70 years. But as the technology got refined, as people figured out new ways to drill wells, suddenly it opened up this massive resource that people previously thought was worthless. Hey, there's a bunch of thin reservoirs. What's the point of that? But through horizontal drilling and through fracture stimulation, which is what fracking is, you've been able to unlock huge amounts of oil resources, especially in the Permian Basin. And the US has gone from being a country with shrinking oil supply to rivaling uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia as the largest crude oil producer in the world again, thanks to fracking. Wow. Can you explain it a little bit, maybe more in layman's terms? When you think about the rocks underneath the earth, you have oil that is found within rock formations. 
when the rock formations are very tight, you stick a well into the ground, you might get a very low flow rate if the rocks are very tightly spaced together. What fracture stimulation does is it literally breaks apart the rocks to help ease the flow of oil to the surface. That is an extremely layman's term explanation for how to do this. There's a bunch of oil in rocks. When you tried to get it in the past using maybe the previous methods, it was very hard to get a lot out of it. But now if you stimulate by breaking up the rocks, it releases a bunch of oil. And, and in doing that, it's made the United States rival the largest oil producer on the planet. Again, with all apologists to geologists, that's a good description today. So for the listeners, just to kind of summarize it, there's a bunch of ways to get it out of the ground, analyze the land, buy the land, put equipment in the land. Now I have the oil that's coming out. Now walk us through the rest of the value chain. And assuming it's a non-integrated player, it's just a bunch of people. So the upstream producers, the so-called exploration production or E&P companies, all those terms are synonymous with one another. Most of their job is done once the oil comes out of the ground. They then put it into a pipeline. And that's usually the end of the process for the upstream production industry. Uh, There's a bunch of these midstream companies They're currently structured as master limited partnerships or MLPs. Pipelines, you tend to get a fixed or very low variable tariff for shipping the oil along your pipeline. So they've been sort of fixed income proxies in this low interest search for yield type of environment. And then they take the oil and ship it to refining companies. And that's a whole nother subset of companies, names like Valero Energy, Phillips 66, Marathon Petroleum, Holly Frontier. They're simply in the business of taking that crude oil that they get via pipeline from the E&P company and then breaking it down into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and so forth. But for the upstream company, the value comes, what did I pay for the acreage? What was the development cost for the oil? How difficult or not, or how good or bad was I at getting that oil out of the ground? And then once you sell it, you're selling it at the oil price that Everyone knows about that WTI or Brent oil price. Are we going to $100 a barrel? We crashed to negative 37 last year. That very high visibility oil price is the bulk of the revenue drivers for any upstream company. So ENPs are the upstream guys. I bought the land. I bought equipment to get the land. Then I have a yield that comes out of the land at the current price of 69 or 71, you said today. Do I get a return on that money or not? I stick it in a pipeline. The pipeline sounds like a part logistics, part real estate business? Correct. That's a great description. And then it shows up at a refinery. What does a refinery do? So the refinery is actually almost the opposite characteristics of the upstream company, where there's a huge upfront fixed cost to build a new refinery. They're very expensive. And as a result, I think the standard line is, in the United States, we've built no new refineries since 1976. And some of the refineries that are still used today were built in the early 1900s, but have gotten constant reinvestment so as to not have to build a new one. But they're in the business of taking that crude oil, cracking it, which is a reasonably literal term. And then from the crude oil comes refined products. There's a lot of heat and a lot of pressure to break down that crude barrel. And you end up with gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, all the kind of fuels that we use to sustain and grow modern life as we know it. What are they doing? Are they applying chemicals to them? They're like, what actually happens if you looked inside of a refinery? So there's a few processes within a refinery. There's your basic crude distillation. That's going to be the first attempt to apply 
pressure and chemicals and so forth to break down the barrel. And then there's further refinement through other processes, catalytic crackers and so forth to, again, continue to try and refine that barrel of crude oil. And so crude oil will break down into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, but also residual fuel oil. In the 1970s and earlier, that used to be a source of power generation. It is a very high polluting, very expensive form of power generation. And after the 1970s crisis, especially the US, Japan, and Europe said, we don't want to do this anymore. Not so much for environmental reasons, a little bit more for energy security reasons. They switched to coal, they switched to nuclear, they switched to natural gas for power generation. But so therefore, this large swath of residual fuel oil, it's a literal term, it's the residue of the barrel. You keep trying to break that down into, again, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. It's a continuous process of heat, pressure, chemical reactions to break down that barrel. What are the economics of that business? Are they taking risk or is that just a pure kind of value add business? That really becomes just a margin business. So what does the gasoline, diesel, jet fuel sell for versus what did I pay for the crude oil feedstock? And does that margin cover whatever the cost of that refinery is? The economics work out that it is very, very difficult based on refining margins to justify building new refineries, especially in a country like the United States or in Europe or some of the more developed areas. There are countries in the Far East and the Middle East where the governments take the view that we want to make sure we can do this so that our citizens have gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. And they de facto subsidize the cost of some of the new refineries that are built in those parts of the world. But did they actually take the risk of buying the oil and then they have to make the margin on the other side? They're not just a value add, hey, it's your oil and we'll just refine it and give it to whoever your customers are? That's absolutely correct. So in the upstream business, the risk is, does that parcel of acreage hold oil? And if it holds oil, how much capital is going to cost to get it out of the oil? And then is the oil price going to be 10, 50, or 100? So there's kind of three main points of risk for the upstream producer. For the refining company, the main risks are, will the price of gasoline be sufficiently in excess of the price of the crude oil? And since I've paid for this refinery, can I keep it up and running? And can I especially keep it up and running when other people have problems? So it's a high-risk business in that you've got very high pressures. Refineries are subject to having downtime unexpectedly. You can have terrible things happen, explosions, other kind of unexpected downtimes. It is a risky business in that respect. If you're able to run at a time when other people are having problems, that is one of the ways you can make quite a bit of money in the refining business. Otherwise, what can you do to lower your cost of crude oil. So even crude oil itself, I mentioned WTI and Brent, those are just two of the higher profile prices. You could buy Canadian heavy oil that sells for $20 less than WTI. If everyone could buy Canadian oil for $20 less than WTI, they would do it. It requires some special refining processes to be able to buy that type of crude oil called heavy oil and turn it into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. So risk comes in the refining business by both the spread And then are you able to invest in things that can lower your crude acquisition cost and earn a return on that piece of equipment that does that? And then just to finish it out, the last part. So if I'm doing jet fuel, I guess that's pretty straightforward. You Maybe you sell it to a distributor or you sell it to the end market. What about like if I sell it to a gas station? Is it refinery sells to a gas station? And we're imagining a world where they're not integrated. So 
sells to a gas station and the gas station sells to the customer and makes some small margin on every gallon of fuel? Is that... I mean, so most refiners are going to sell sell to a wholesale marketer who then will in turn sell to a a gas station. So as this business has matured, the growth rates for oil demand are 1% to 2% is a decent growth rate at the top line level. That's how much the world uses more oil and really uses more gas and diesel jet fuel everywhere, 1% to 2% growth. This has become therefore very fragmented and specialized. And so it's going to be the wholesale markers that ultimately sell it to gas stations. In the US in particular, gas stations, while they may say Exxon or Chevron or something like that, they're generally franchised out. And it can be often you might see immigrants as an example who own gas stations, depending on where you live, or other business people that own these gas stations. And gas stations themselves, the bulk of the money comes from coffee, cigarettes, and donuts, the convenience store aspect of it. You actually don't make that much on actually selling the gasoline itself. It can be 20, 30% margins or more is again on the convenience store aspect of it. So you have the gasoline to attract the customer. And while they're filling up, they go in and buy other stuff, which tends to be higher margin. Yeah, no, that's super helpful to understand and kind of visualize each piece of it. We talked about the history and all of these businesses, it sounds like in the US at least, were started by John D. Rockefeller, the man who started oil and gas. Talk a little bit about maybe the early days of how this business came to be. Really like take us back to the 1800s briefly and then talk about the breakup and then subsequently how these things are kind of recombined. Or the other question I have is the major milestones or what were the big milestones when you look back over the last 150 years? So what's interesting is the issues with the oil industry today, where it's deeply cyclical, you get periods of time where everybody is too optimistic, they drill too many wells, it then creates oversupply that causes the price to crash. That began with the founding of this business. So those first wells that were drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, and you had a mad rush of speculators, each with their own oil derrick. These are very classic and iconic scenes of these oil towns which just spring up overnight. And very quickly, people would drain whatever pool of oil was discovered. It was obviously highly unregulated at that time. And it really upset John D. Rockefeller. And he did not appreciate the lack of discipline and the continuous cycles of overproduction by all these mom and pop oil drillers. Today, we call them E&P companies, the independent producers that we spent some time talking about. There were non-publicly traded, much smaller versions of these guys in the late 1800s. And what he had the visionary insight to do was, if I control the logistical infrastructure, I can control the price of oil. And so he essentially monopolized the pipeline and refining part of the business. And I think it is that heritage for why Exxon even today is still really a great all-in logistics refining petrochemicals company. It wasn't so much petrochemicals back in the 1800s, but it was owning the main crude pipelines. And by controlling and being the kind of the monopoly owner of that infrastructure, he was able to shut people off. He was able to limit how much supply made it to market and therefore a de facto control the price of oil and ensure that he, and frankly, everybody else for that matter, would earn an acceptable level of profits. Clearly, at some point in time, the US government decided you have too much control, you have too much power, and we're not comfortable with this. But this basic issue of over-drilling, over-optimism, and therefore a price cycle of boom-bust, too much supply, then too little supply, has been part of this business since its founding in the late 1800s. You realize this thing, you built out all the infrastructure and logistics. And it sounds like of all the companies listed off, just to give a sense for listeners, how many of them, Chevron, ExxonMobil, 
How many of those are all actually just Rockefeller's creations? They're almost all Rockefeller creations. If you've heard of a company, it's almost certainly a Rockefeller creation. So the two dominant companies were Standard Oil and what today is known as Royal Dutch Shell. It was Royal Dutch Petroleum and Shell Transport and Trading. They merged in, I want to say, 1907. But they were kind of the European, if you will, equivalent. And their businesses were in the Dutch East uh, Indies, what is today Indonesia, and that part of the world, again, back in the late 1800s. But it was Royal Dutch Shell, and it was Standard Oil. So Standard Oil California became what we know today as Chevron. Standard Oil of Ohio and Standard Oil of Indiana, they became what is now part of BP via Amico, which was a company that used to trade up until the 2000s. Standard Oil of New York is Mobile. Standard Oil of New Jersey is Exxon. They, of course, merged in, I want to say, 1999. And so all these companies, the most substantial and significant oil companies today are really the descendants of the original Standard Oil. Rough strokes, what would be the like market cap or top line if Standard Oil was still one company? I mean, with all the underperformance, we're probably not at a trillion dollars anymore of market cap. I and mean, it has been actually a tough decade, which I know we're going to get to for the oil sector. But for most of my career, which is 30 years now, the energy sector has been anywhere from 8 to 15% of the S&P 500. The bulk of that has been the standard oil heritage companies. Today, energy is just under 3% of the S&P 500. That speaks to how much underperformance we've had. But it historically, the bulk of the weighting or the bulk of the relevance of this sector have been these standard oil descendant companies. Let's actually talk about the returns on capital and where things have been. ExxonMobil in 2013 was the largest market cap in the world. And for many years, was had the most EBITDA, I think, of any company. And in the last seven, eight years, we've seen that come down. What happened? If you look at the various points in time. In 1990, your top three companies were IBM, Exxon, and General Electric. In 2000, your top three companies were General Electric, Exxon, and Pfizer. In 2010, your top three companies were Exxon, Apple, and Microsoft. So Exxon was continuously a top three S&P market cap company. And then there were a bunch of other companies. It might have been Cisco a long time ago. It was GE, it was Pfizer, then it was Apple. And through all those ups and downs, through every other industry cycle, or time in the sun, Exxon persevered as really just a dominant, dominant company. When you talk about structural growth, we have had population growth. With population growth, we've had economic growth, and therefore energy demand growth, and therefore oil demand growth, and therefore ultimately top-line growth, modest perhaps, but just continuous top-line growth for companies like ExxonMobil. Today, they fall into I believe 21 in the S&P. They've been passed by Home Depot and MasterCard and Visa. And I know your listeners probably say, hey, those are great companies. They're upstarts relative to ExxonMobil. All of them are. But this is a reflection both of the success of these other companies, but really some of the issues that Exxon has had. And they were a top three company by virtue of being by far the most profitable oil company. So the oil industry itself is a commodity business. If you're a commodity business, over time, your returns on capital are going to correspond to your cost of capital. You're actually not going to generate excess returns in a commodity business. So how do you? Again, you invest at the low end of the cost curve. You go to where the next great oil field is going to be, and you get out of the oil field that used to be low cost that is now high cost. You don't overpay based on over-optimism. There's lots of characteristics to being a better return on capital company. And what I do think is underappreciated, including by oil investors, never mind the broader public, is how much dispersion there is in the ability to be profitable. 
So while your average company may only earn a cost of capital, your best-in-class companies, through all the ups and downs of oil prices, bull market, bear market, super cycle, non-super cycle, they have consistently generated 15 to 30% returns on capital. And there are many different profitability metrics. I think return on capital is one of the better ones for the oil business. We can spend a lot of time debating that point, but if you take that as a given, your best-in-class companies have consistently done 15 to 30% returns on capital. And Exxon has historically always been, up until the last five years, one of those top quartile return on capital companies. Conversely, your worst-in-class, your fourth quartile, even when oil went from $20 a barrel in the early 2000s to $150 a barrel in 2008, even during that massive super cycle period, if you were a bottom quartile company, you probably lost money. And it does speak to how much dispersion and how challenging the business can be. You have opportunity for great profits. You have opportunity to lose a lot of money. It almost sounds like the hedge fund business when I hear you talking about it. I think people associate the oil business as one where you're just trying to guess the price of oil. That might be true if you're trying to day trade your typical E&P company that might do a little better or a little worse than some of those return metrics I mentioned. Exxon and Lee Raymond, the legendary former CEO, had this great, great graph he showed at the analyst meeting every year. This is, again, going back to the 1990s, where on a rolling 10 and 20-year basis, Exxon's total shareholder return was better than the S&P 500 consistently over a rolling period at a lower volatility. They had a better sharp ratio than the S&P 500. It really was remarkable. And that's despite oil being $10 a barrel in 1998. At the time, $25 was a good price in 2001. Through all that volatility and that legacy period, Exxon was consistently higher return with lower volatility than the S&P 500. If I'm trying to connect dots here, it sounds like they stopped being great investors. The last five or 10 years, their ability to capital allocate has diminished. Is, is that a fair statement? You've 100% nailed it. And I think the question is, what happened? Why? And how is it that they were a dominant company in the late 1800s when you had a very different business, Standard Oil with all these crazy mom and pop drillers. And then the US government breaks them up and there are all these different pieces and all those pieces do well and do well through world wars, through post-World War II boom periods through the civil unrest and post-Vietnam stagflation of the 1970s, the oil embargoes, peaks, troughs, through all of that, they zigged and zagged correctly. Maybe not perfectly, but they stood the test in time. They remained a top three S&P 500 company over many, many decades, if not century plus. When Lee Raymond was ready to retire, this was a point in time where I think Exxon recognized perhaps began to need a friendlier face on the company. And I think clearly, I, I think the older listeners will remember the Exxon Valdez. That was not a great period with the big oil spill in Alaska. And while Exxon technically cleaned it up, paid damages and so forth, I think that began the period of them being cast as a villain and the oil business having sort of flipped from, hey, this is great. We all drive cars and get this gasoline to, well, isn't there pollution? <laughs> and maybe there's some climate concerns and Exxon, maybe they're the ones kind of pushing back on the need to address climate change. And again, I'm talking now the 1980s, 1990s, at the beginning of the, the growing awareness that, hey, pumping CO2 in the atmosphere probably has some negative externalities. And so I think Exxon started to switch from a public presentation standpoint is perhaps being cast as the villain. When they made the CEO change to Rex Tillerson, again, it was about 2003 timeframe, they were coming off a period where in the 1970s, you had a big boom. 
In the 1980s, you had the bust in 1986, and you had a period where oil companies did well by restructuring, by cutting costs, by divesting assets, narrowing down to their lower cost operations, selling high cost operations. The boom period of the 70s had ended and it was the time to rationalize and recover. These companies used to be quite diversified. I think Exxon owned Montgomery Ward. Some of the steps you see today, for example, Amazon buying MGM and some of the most successful companies diversifying into other businesses. I suspect whenever they do mature, you're going to see investors calling for those companies to divest things that are tangential. This is what the oil companies did in the 80s and 90s. And Lee Raymond led the charge of saying, we need to be profitable. We need to focus on our lowest cost assets and operations. That mindset is something the management team stuck with, even when it no longer made sense to stick with it. And so by the time we got to the end of the 1990s, all the low cost de-bottlenecking opportunities to grow supply at a very low cost kind of come to an end. And we were going to be in need of trying to find bigger, newer fields, which is higher risk and to go to further flung areas of the world. The big integrated oils like Exxon made the decision, the US is mature, let's go overseas. And they frankly made some bad bets on where to go overseas. They ended up divesting a lot of the US assets. And this is just 10 years before the shale revolution and a period of much higher oil prices where there was a huge advantage to having U.S. assets and having U.S. acreage. So when they transitioned away from Lee Raymond, the management team, I think, didn't recognize that the fundamentals of what were going to be a successful oil company for the next 20 years were changing. Which countries do you want to be in? What types of assets do you want to have? We're no longer in this sort of low gutted out type oil price environment. And I think it began a process of kind of getting behind the curve. So by the time Exxon recognized, hey, the whole cost cutting asset restructuring thing is kind of in the past, let's go invest again. They compounded their mistakes by not only being late, but then making a bunch of bad decisions. It sounds like there's a big push to divestitures and optimizing these businesses during the 80s and 90s. And in early 2003, there's a management change Instead of thinking about the future next stage of investments, they kind of kept following the same playbook and it led to them to making a lot of bad bets. Can you talk about some of the specific bad capital allocation bets or bad investment decisions they made? I think the ones that come to mind most notably would be the XTO acquisition. XTO was one of the independent producers that pioneered or was one of the leaders in the shale gas revolution. So back in those days, it would have been the Barnett Shale was kind of the original famous field where George Mitchell is the heralded founder of the fracking boom. He had a field in the Barnett Shale of Texas, figured out a way to drill a well sideways. We call them horizontal wells do this fracture stimulation and to get a whole bunch of gas production at a lower than expected cost. And then XTO had the playbook of buying assets from the majors, companies like Exxon and Mobil, et cetera, buying them at a low cost, not paying for the shale potential that XTO saw, but that the majors didn't see because they were less familiar or less believers that you could drill horizontally and fracture stimulate something and get a good return on it. And so they bought up a bunch of assets. And so XTO at its peak was a tens of billions of dollar type company. And Exxon essentially paid a peak valuation at a time when the shale gas revolution was going to take US natural gas prices from $6 in MMB to as low as $2 to $3 in MMB And not only that, the fields that XTO did a good job developing were no longer going to be the low cost fields. So they paid effectively too high of a natural gas price for assets 
that XTO did a good job with, but we're just starting to transition out of being the low-cost gas fill. So they kind of made a series of mistakes, and that's the highest profile mistake they made. It was the first time Exxon went away from talking about returns on capital. I flagged it when I was an analyst at Goldman Sachs at the time that this is the first time we're seeing them deviate away from what they've usually prioritized as their key metric. They made some bad investments in Canada. Oil sense itself can be a good or bad business. Their oil sands investments turned out to be high cost. They tried to partner with some Russian companies. That didn't work out. So it's just a series of issues that arose. Is there a single unifying theme here that comes to mind when you think about how a 150-year-old company that had always been disciplined, had always made strong capital allocation, lost its way? Is it a management? Management comes to my mind when I think here, but are there other things that... So Exxon has been classically highly centralized in their decision-making. The line in the business is management sits in the God pod, and there's sort of five men, all of a pretty similar background, similar engineering, geology-type background, sitting in Dallas making the decisions for ExxonMobil globally. I mean, I can remember actually visiting an Exxon executive in China back in the late 90s and asking him, why aren't you investing in this project? I know it's not as high return as this other asset, but it seems like China's going to be a great growth area. Why not? He says, I'm not going to be the guy going to Lee Raymond and telling them why I wasted a bunch of the company's capital. I mean, that's sort of the power and hold that Lee Raymond and that management team had on really the entire organization. The issue was when it was time to change, there wasn't diversity amongst this management ranks. It was a classic case where everyone has the same background. Everyone has the same mindset. And there was, I think, as an outsider, I have not worked at Exxon, de facto group thing, de facto backwards looking analysis. This is what worked. And this is what worked for our legendary CEO, Lee Raymond. Who am I to say that we should chart a different course of action? Never mind that Lee himself did that. Lee's the one who turned Exxon from a company that probably overextended themselves in the 1970s boom to realizing the company needed to change and shift to one that focused on cost cutting and asset restructuring. It was now going to be the job of a new management to recognize, hey, they didn't have to forecast that another super cycle was happening. But I think they could have recognized that some of the assets that they'd gotten a lot of value out of was nearing the end of their life. And it was time to look differently. And certainly a management team could have said, we are late to the shale gas boom. Are we sure this company that has grown massively in value, that we're not suddenly paying too high of a gas price for it? Or that are those really going to be the future low-cost gas fields? And the management team, I'd say, are the ones who I think made some bad decisions along those lines. For the XTO acquisition, what did they pay for it roughly? And what is it actually worth? Or what has it been deemed worth today? I want to say they paid $45 billion for XTO. And it's certainly probably worth more than zero. But how much more than zero, I think today would be a question. Wow. So that was a big whiff. It was a big whiff. If you go back to Lee Raymond, his comment was always, I don't know what the price of oil or gas is going to be. I know that I have to constantly figure out what is going to be at the low end of the cost curve going forward. And that's where I want to invest in. That's where I want to be. It is not going to be about trying to guess what oil and gas prices are going to be. With XTO, that was the first time we suddenly got talked that, hey, today the gas price has fallen from 8 or $9 in MMBTU to 6 And we think 4 is probably the trough. Aren't we doing well by investing at what we think is the bottom of the cycle. That, again, another red flag when the talk flipped to 
again, talking about the gas price cycle as a basis to make such a large acquisition. There were a lot of red flags at that time that I think bore out. You said Lee Raymond's name so many times in this conversation. What you didn't say, I'm curious, was he a genius capital allocator? Would he have figured out this next wave of this, almost like the Warren Buffetts or the, you know, the outsider type profile? Was it just him missing? Would he have figured out the next iteration of this because that's how he thought and how he approached things? Like, Tell us a little bit more about him and what you think about that question. Part of a successful company is passing it on to the next generation in better shape than you found it. So in that respect, he succeeded on that. But did he create the type of management structure where dissent, where different voices, where diverse voices could be heard? And I think if there's a critique of Lee Raymond, environmentalists would probably rightly critique that Lee Raymond was not exactly at the forefront of accepting the science behind climate change. I think that's a pretty legitimate critique that actually still befuddles the broader oil and gas industry to this day. They're still trying to overcome initial skepticism and delay and denialism that I think really started with Lee Raymond's Exxon Mobiles. That's critique number one. I think the Exxon-specific critique would be, at the end of the day, CEOs and management teams One of their number one responsibilities is to train and mentor and bring along that next generation. So if there have been issues with the successor management teams, they are ultimately the offspring of what Lee Raymond put in place. And so I don't know that it was necessarily up to him to figure out the business was going to change going forward. But I think you do need to put in place the type of people who can collectively figure out here's where we want to go and here's where we don't want to go and engage in the kind of discussion and debate that gets you ultimately to the right answer. I will say one of their peer companies, Chevron, has gone through in my career four CEOs. It was Kender, Dave O'Reilly, John Watson, and now Mike Worth. Mike Worth, he's mid-tenure, so I guess it's too early to tell, but they've had a succession of very good CEOs. That is a company that I would say deserves credit for doing CEO succession very well. I think in Exxon's case, for all the positive that Lee Raymond did, There are some hits to how the succession was clearly set up and the type of culture they had where the sort of group thing seems like is kept them from. Well, it's like the God pod. If the God pod is makes the right calls, you have amazing returns on capital. If they don't, you sort of live and die by that, it sounds like. I think that's right. Yep. You mentioned the renewables and climate change. Talk about the bet that ExxonMobil made around renewables versus their competitors. And then how did it play out? Well, so I think there is a go forward question of if you are really good at the oil and gas business, and that is the number one criteria, if you're mediocre at the oil and gas business, you certainly have no right, or you certainly haven't earned any investor's right to go into some other business that you may or may not know anything about. So the first order of business is always be great at what you do. And Exxon is certainly in need of getting back to being great, which they once were, and I think they can get back to actually. Um, Then the question becomes, how do we see the landscape changing going forward? So Literally, since the Industrial Revolution, or certainly the invention of the automobile, there's been this straight line up of population growth, economic growth, energy demand growth, oil demand growth, gasoline demand growth, and jet and diesel and so forth. And while there might have been the occasional recession year where demand might have fallen slightly, it was an up and to the right type of thing. So the only debate was, how can I again produce the lowest cost barrel of oil or natural gas? And that might change. But that's where the change is going to be. For the first time, industry now has to struggle with what's the demand picture look like? Now, we know today, Jesse, there are at least 800 million people 
who have no access to any form of energy that we take for granted. And there's another billion people, so almost 2 billion people in total who have very limited access to being able to turn on their lights or drive a car or any of these kind of things, and they're going to want energy. And it is absurd to think someone who has nothing is going to be driving a Tesla as their first vehicle, right? So there is something inexpensive, efficient about fossil fuel development that is why it exists. And if you're firing middle-class lifestyle, Africa, India, China, and so forth, therein is the case for future energy demand growth fueled by fossil fuels. If we're trying to address and consider that we need to put less CO2 in the atmosphere and governments or people are going to take the steps to switch out of these things, then you have the question of how should Exxon or any other oil company position themselves along those lines. For the sake of understanding, maybe kind of like a case study, talk about what they did and then maybe talk about who did the most opposite thing to them and kind of how that's fared for both companies. The ends of the spectrum today are BP versus ExxonMobil. So BP under their current CEO, Bernard Looney, has come out and said, we are going to no longer be an integrated oil company. We're an integrated energy company, and we are going to be consumer-facing, and we're not going to talk about upstream and downstream, all these things that you and I have talked about. We're going to have these new low-carbon businesses. We're going to have our traditional businesses. We're totally okay if our traditional oil supply falls by, I want to say they're saying 40%, 4-0. It's going to be asset sales and natural declines. And we are looking forward to investing in wind, solar, electric vehicle infrastructure. And we are going to, as a company, address all our sources of emission, those that we directly create, which are called scope one and scope two, and those that consumers create by burning gasoline in their cars, which is called scope three. We're going to address all of that by 2050 in line with Paris goals. And we have a plan. We are going to we are going to shift substantial capital over time into these, quote, cleaner businesses. Most U.S. companies have taken almost the exact... And, what, and sorry, and what did ExxonMobil say? Essentially the exact opposite. We're not going to do any of that other stuff. They've all shifted to now everyone believes the science behind climate change. Everyone wants to be Paris compliant. But we don't believe as a company, A, if someone burns gasoline in their car, why are we responsible for that? I mean, that's your decision. You were the one who bought the SUV. You could have bought a Toyota Prius if you wanted. I'm of the view that there are many people to blame for those types of emissions. Well, companies there's some responsibility, but so do you as an individual consumer. And they're also saying, we don't know anything about solar and wind. Those are low-return businesses, or at least we perceive them to be low-return businesses. So even if you think it's good to invest in that, we're going to be the best possible oil company because under most scenarios, given all these billions of people who aren't going to be able to afford Teslas, to put it in a nutshell, there's still going to be a lot of oil demand, even in the, we want to hold temperatures to one and a half or two degrees Celsius delta. So even in those scenarios, we're going to be the lowest cost oil producer to meet whatever demand there is in some future year. And that is the tact essentially all of the US companies have taken to varying degrees, but we're going to be the best oil company we can be. Can we take a step back and give us some high level perspective on this market? How big is it? How does consumption work today? And what does the trend line look like? Let me start with the uber big picture view of energy. So we use energy for three basic things. You use it for transportation, to drive your car, truck, plane, or ship. You use it for power generation, for everything we do for electricity. And you use it to heat your home or business or what have you. For transportation fuels, that is essentially overwhelmingly driven by crude oil. So almost all transportation markets are going to be crude oil based. 
there's a little bit of sugarcane ethanol and corn ethanol. And even in a country like Pakistan, there's some natural gas vehicles and so forth. But overwhelmingly, that is what oil is used for. For power generation and heating, that is sort of everything else. It's coal, it's natural gas, it's renewables, which includes solar, wind, hydro, and some bioenergy, and then nuclear. So if you looked at overall energy consumption, again, transport, power, and heating, oil is about 30% of that, coal is about 25%, and natural gas is about 25%. If you add up 30 plus 25 plus 25 you'd say 80% of the energy the world uses today is fossil fuel-based. And that is why it is such a difficult problem. It is so ingrained in everything we do. Again, all transportation, most of your power generation, most of your home and business heating is going to be fossil fuel-based. If you take that 30% that oil, that's what electric vehicles are trying to solve. We'll see how successful they are. We'll see whether electric vehicles remain just for the rich or the mass affluent, or if the cost can continue to come down as they have been, if vehicles can move beyond just the Tesla luxury type vehicles into a broader market. That's the problem electric vehicles are trying to solve, that 30% of our overall energy consumption, that is oil. For the power generation and home heating side, You've always had all this choice. You've always had this choice between coal, natural gas, solar, wind, and nuclear. Nuclear, of course, is completely carbon-free, but it comes with other issues that is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But I think if you're truly committed to decarbonizing, it's almost certain that nuclear is going to have to be part of the piece. I think where there is optimism today, but where there are also challenges, is the significant progress solar and wind has made in reducing their costs. Today, Jesse, in terms of our overall energy consumption, solar and wind are each just 1% of energy markets. They're very, very small. They've been growing at double-digit clips. So if you're an investor in solar stocks or what have you, you're going to be excited that top-line growth has been 15 20%, maybe much more than that. But in terms of a percent of the total, they're minuscule. What was that 80% 10, 20 years ago? It would have been... 85%, 90%. So you've had a steady gain in the share of renewables. So, But it's still small. We're not talking about a lot of shift over a long period of time. Right. So typically, energy transitions take multiple decades. And by multiple, I mean five to seven. So 50 to 70 years are the timeframes by which you typically shift from one form of energy to another. So a century plus ago, people would have used firewood and burning biomass bad biomass in this case, to heat their homes primarily. And then over time, coal was developed and it took 70% for coal to become a massive share. Oil took 70 years for the internal combustion engine cars to really become dominant in terms of transportation and the transportation share to grow. So all these things take, which is the challenge. If people want to decarbonize faster than 50 to 70 years, I think that's going to be a big challenge to do. I presume there's some inertia in related to that, but a lot of it is cost-oriented. So can you help us understand kind of this incremental unit cost of energy for oil, coal, gas versus renewables like wind and solar and how you see those trending as well? So this is one of the areas where I think there's a lot of misinformation by everyone on the topic. People expect this answer of what is the cheapest, and if it's the cheapest, let's just do all of that. So it's absolutely true that solar and wind have come down in cost to the point that they are very competitive in power markets. But the question is, 
could you go from 1% to 100% at that low cost and have, by the way, reliable power that doesn't just work when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, but when we get those super cold days or the big heat wave, will they work as well? And will they work everywhere? I think in the places where solar and wind work, they work very, very well. Now, you're still going to need some battery storage and battery backup. That's an area of technology-driven innovation that still needs to make progress. And the same kind of progress we're seeing in electric vehicle battery technology, you will see in sort of battery storage for these things. You're going to need some way to store that solar and wind so that it can be used during the times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Even in an oil field, there are parts of the Permian Basin that are super low cost and there are parts that are high cost. So there's never any blanket answer on what is low and high cost. What I would say is though, all of these technologies can work today. So oil, coal, and natural glass clearly are competitive. So are solar, so is wind. To build a new nuclear plant is actually quite expensive, but once it's up and running, it's a very low cost, very dependable source of power. So the trick is really trying to match up all these items. How do you develop a project so that it's competitive on the cost side, but also that it's available? No one wants to not have power. Is it fair to say that wind and solar are around the same price nominally, but then incrementally, the more and more of it you would need, the quality would suffer? There's not a real answer yet for how they would truly replace what we might be getting in our homes today or in our vehicles today. The short answer is is that is correct. Now, people who are proponents solely of fossil fuels, I think, overstate the undependability of solar and wind. As an example, I live in the uh, third world state of New Jersey, where we regularly have blackouts. I would love to have solar in my house so that I could have power when we have our inevitable blackouts. I couldn't build my own coal plant at my house. I could buy a diesel fired generator, and we actually do have a natural gas fired generator. So things like solar in particular, the ability to have distributed power is actually a real advantage of solar that you don't get. You can't build your own natural gas plant as you certainly cannot build your own nuclear plant. So there are pros and cons to all of these technologies. I think solar and wind will gain a lot of market share in the years ahead. But again, they're each 1% of our energy mix today. So we've got a long, long way to go. As an investor, that's exciting. That means we've got a huge volume growth opportunity. But it also means we're going to continue to need a lot of those fossil fuels that the world's going to want. So if there's a billion people who have no access to any form of energy, electricity, or water, and another billion who are very limited. Those two billion people, what are they doing today? They're burning biomass in the bad way. Inside their homes, it's very bad for lung problems, air pollution, and so forth. It's a lot of people. And to deny those people access to any form of energy, it'd be nice to give them distributed solar. I'm sure it'd be nice to give them a Tesla. I'm just not sure that's practical. So you give them what is possible, which might be a gasoline car, which might be a coal plant as an example, but hopefully over time you make these things cleaner. So It's almost like any technology curve we've seen, except a much slower moving one, it almost feels like you've got these early adopters on one side, you've got mass market, you've even got late adopters in a sense because of sort of GDP per capita and the less well-off countries in the 50-year horizon, like how is this going to play out? Is it going to get wholesale replaced or do you see it as like a, there's going to be places you use one, places you use the other? How do you see it playing out in that horizon? I suspect we'll be using all of the above for a long period of time, but with a growing share from the broad spectrum of renewables. At the same time, I think significant steps will be made 
to further clean up the fossil fuel side of things. So in terms of speed of evolution, I think people in the technology space will point to things like going from DVDs to streaming or going from landlines to cell phones. Those are all significantly more possible in a much shorter time frame than changing your fundamental energy mix, which is much more capital intensive, is much higher in total dollar costs, and really becomes a societal type issue. Even in something like natural gas, which is significantly less polluting, both in terms of air pollution and carbon pollution than, say, coal, you still have a methane issue. There are technologies today, there's billing to monitor this, where it's incumbent on natural gas producers to essentially eliminate their methane emissions, if you will. And when you do that, suddenly natural gas becomes a more climate and environmentally friendly alternative as it already is versus coal. In countries like India and China, they're sitting on massive coal deposits. So to tell them you need to go to a more expensive form of power that, by the way, may not have all the jobs that the coal industry does, and coal will support the rail industry. It supports a whole bunch of different industries in these countries. And you're going to have to go to something else that isn't as dependable or might require additional storage. That's a tough sell. It's a very, very tough sell in these developing countries. I think you will see them change. Again, I'd put the time frame as optimistically 20 to 30 years, realistically 50 to 70 years. So you believe that it sounds like the bet on continuing to be the best oil company versus going on renewables, that has nothing to do with their stock side. It's much more about the investments and the mistakes from an oil and gas capital allocation perspective. I think that the overwhelming problem with Exxon has been the deterioration in their returns on capital from being in that best in class 15 to 30%, no matter what the oil price is type bucket, to frankly being just another mediocre oil company. There are worse companies, if that means anything, but they've basically regressed to the mean, which is about as disappointing as it can get for a company that, again, has such a rich, substantial history of overcoming so much over such a long period of time. Can you talk about their peer set a little bit? Has there anyone who's remained in that top quartile or how's the peer set done during this time? The better return companies, if you go back, let's just call it the last 30 years, it has generally been their fellow, let's just call them integrated oils or super majors. So I'm going to divide this up into kind of super cycle and before. So let's just call that 1990 to 2008, which was your major up cycle. And then since then, so in the pre-super cycle period, it was a whole bunch of companies. So names you're all familiar with, BP, Chevron, Exxon, Shell, Total. And that group of five, which survived all the ups and downs, they are still the higher return companies today in the post-super cycle period. Pre-super cycle, though, many of the companies that they ended up gobbling up to become super majors, names like Amoco, Arco, Texaco, Mobile, which is obviously half of ExxonMobil, and then some smaller companies like Marathon, Oxy, Phillips Petroleum, they were also some of the historically better return companies. With all the consolidation, there are only now these five mega cap super majors, and they've still generally been the better return companies. But you've seen the group of, let's just call them good companies, broaden out a bit. So we have two pure play producers, Continental Resources and ConocoPhillips, a quartet of refiners, Holly, Marathon, Phillips 66, and Valero. And in the more recent period, the group is broadened out to include some of these pure plays as well. So... Is there a player who's taken the mantle as the top quartile recorder for Exxon? Or I mean, I would say it's generally been Chevron is the one that closed the gap. They always were lagging Exxon. And the question was always, could Chevron catch up? And I think 
what frankly happened is Exxon caught down to where everybody else was. And then Chevron, to their credit, has kind of maintained a lot of that historic financial discipline is kind of the term used to ensure they were only investing in the best projects. I'd say Chevron and Total, which is a French super major, they've really taken the mantle from Exxon as kind of the highest quality of this big group. And are there any things outside? I mean, we talked about management and succession. Are there other things outside of that that you point to that feel like they shifted them away from being this top performer for 100 years? We didn't talk about this during the upstream period, but unlike almost all other businesses where when you build a manufacturing plant, they can churn out those assets kind of into perpetuity as long as you maintain the plant. And oil field naturally declines. There is only so much oil in that reservoir. As you produce it, the asset depletes. And so what Exxon has always done a good job of is knowing when those fields are trying to deplete and then figuring out the next place to invest. And I think the mistake they made was not so much that the golden goose assets ran out, but that the future assets they chose to invest in turned out to be much lower profitability than they thought. They just picked the wrong future golden goose assets. And as they realized they were making mistakes, they doubled and tripled down on some wrong decisions. And the missing of the shale and the fracking boom, has there been like a postmortem on that or from your vantage point, what led them down that path incorrectly? So all the big guys have had to play catch up in shale. So that generally means then acquiring another company. Once you've acquired another company, whatever value they created by getting that acreage at a low cost and, hey, there's a bunch of oil in the Permian that now works, you're now paying a much fuller price for that asset. So they've all had to play catch up in shale. I will say the big oil companies have always been good at optimizing large field development. And so when shale first came out, it was very much like the example in Titusville, Pennsylvania, where a bunch of people were just drilling a whole bunch of wells. And we've had a couple of boom-bust cycles within shale as EMPs exhibited classic over-optimism and then over-pessimism, capital investment behavior. I think as these fields are managed by Exxon, Chevron, and some of the larger companies, you're going to see actually more discipline. That is a hallmark of the bigger companies, optimizing the wells, the pipelines, not over-investing, not under-investing either, running the assets correctly, not getting too caught up in whether oil is 70 or 50 or any other price. I think Exxon will be one of the companies that kind of shepherds the Permian Basin along in a, in a good way. There is a better outlook going forward. I want to talk about that in one second. Before we do that, just quickly, what was the impact of COVID on their business? COVID was dramatic for the oil business, broadly speaking. So in a business where at 100 million barrels of demand, it would typically be dramatic if demand fell from 100 to 99. If demand was ever down 1 million barrels a day, you'd say, oh my gosh, what went wrong here? This is a terrible recession. Demand at its low point at the height of the lockdowns in April of 2020 fell from 100 to 80. 20%, if you're a tech investor or some other measure, may sound like a normal number. It's about 20x the demand fall that would normally be the worst case demand fall that you've ever seen. Even though OPEC tried to cut supply, even though oil producers tried to cut back on CapEx, there's no chance you can keep up with that amount of demand decline. And the other thing that is hard for people to understand is you just can't stick crude oil wherever you want. Once it's out of the ground, it's either going to get refined into gasoline that you then store, if you will, in your car. It's going to get burned up by your driving your car, or you're going to have to keep it in the ground. To force an oil company to shut in oil takes a really, really low oil price. So while 
a full field development might require $50 a barrel or $60 a barrel to get a good return. The actual lifting cost to just simply lift the barrel, that might only be six, seven, eight, or $10 a barrel. So you have to go to that number or lower. And if you're right at that number, an oil company might say, you know what, it's only going to be a short period of time. I can take a little bit of a loss for a second year. We end up going to negative $37 a barrel. Negative. So you paid people to take your oil away. Now, there's some technical reasons that I don't think we're going to get into on this podcast for why it went to such an extreme of a negative price. But the biggest issue was you had to force oil to stay in the ground. That's called the shut-in oil price. And that's always a really low number. It turned out to be negative 37 this time. Yeah. And it almost sounds like, well, if there's no demand for it, then nobody wants to hold it almost. And it's like hot potato. You're like, well, you hold it, you hold it. and then Well, so you can't hold it. Let's just say you're overproducing copper or gold. You could buy a field and pile that copper or gold till you got to the moon. It might topple over, but you can always stick a gold bar. You can stick pieces of copper anywhere. You can't do that with crude oil. You can't just say, I'm just going to let it spill down this roadway. It has to be in a physical storage infrastructure. So there's only a certain amount of storage tanks or tankers or ships or cars or refinery units where you can keep the oil. So they literally were just full. They, they-, they were totally full. You were totally full. It's more complex than that, but de facto, you were full. And then you forced the producer to keep it in the only other place, which was back underneath the earth. Wow. As we look forward, you were starting to talk a little bit about this, but let's talk about what are the opportunities for them in the next 10 years? If their market cap doubles in the next 10 years, what would have happened to have caused that? I think the number one thing they would have done is they would have fixed themselves as an integrated oil company, which means they would have gone back to figuring out out of all these assets we've bought or acquired, some at good prices, a lot at bad prices, what is worth keeping? The phraseology in the oil business is shrink to grow. The grow part is usually less relevant. It's usually the shrink part where you divest and restructure and whittle down to that which is really at the low end of the cost curve. They will have done a better job of that. You can already see with some of the board changes, some of which they've done voluntarily, some of which have happened involuntarily, you're starting to see more diverse voices enter their boardroom, not just a board of CEOs, but a board of people with different backgrounds, some environmentally oriented, some oil and gas business uh, restructuring oriented, and these kinds of things, and and some with renewables background. I think that's going to be good for Exxon. I think they're going to have to figure out how do we continue to bring a range of viewpoints to the decision-making process? And I think they will fix themselves as an oil company. I think this ESG and climate environment that we're in, it has both risks and opportunities for the oil business. One thing I'd say I'm confident is, is that if you don't invest in the oil business, supply will shrink faster than however quickly you think you can transition away from demand. An oil field, if you don't invest, will naturally decline five, six, seven, eight percent a year. Some fields might decline 30% a year. It took COVID for one month to have a 20% hit to demand. By and large, oil demand has only grown over 100 years. And maybe it doesn't grow going forward. We can probably have a whole separate podcast debating that. But if it's flat or up slightly or down slightly, you have to invest in this business. And right now, with all companies coming off a 10-year period of poor profitability, with a lot of investors concerned about ESG and where oil companies fit in, with a lot of investors concerned about climate and whether oil companies should or should not be part of the future, you're seeing a lot of people not wanting to invest in the business. If you do not invest, you will not have supply. If you do not have supply, you will have a tighter market. I assure you there are billions and billions of people who care about driving their cars, who care about having their lights on. They're always going to choose to do that. 
and they're going to expect oil to be there. If companies don't invest, if governments restrict companies from investing, if investors say, I want no part of investing in oil companies, you're going to have less supply. And that is the case for the better price cycle going forward. But for Exxon, it's not about hoping that prices get better. It is about fixing themselves as an oil company. If you're in 10 years forward and their market cap is cut in half from today, so it's even lower, what would have happened to the business? I mean, there's the obvious thing of they didn't allocate capital well, or they further invested and they invested poorly. Are there any other maybe sub-drivers to that or other things beneath that do you think are threats to the business? I mean, I think the basic threat that I am not a believer in, but that some people do, and it's, it's worthy of debate, which is, do we have a more accelerated transition away from oil in a shorter time frame than what I think is practical? But even companies like BP and Shell, forget the exact nomenclature, but they call it rapid adoption and or sky. They have a few catchphrases that say, we have a dramatic and quick shift down in oil demand. If that came true, that probably would hurt all oil companies, including ExxonMobil. Yeah, this has been endlessly fascinating. The last question all the listeners love is there's kind of three parts. It's lesson for builders, lessons for investors, and then places people could go for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. If you're a builder, entrepreneur, executive, what's the single lesson or lessons for those folks coming from this story? It's really hard when trend changes. It's the hardest thing to get. How do you get that sort of structural inflection? And there's such recency bias, and especially in a business like oil, where the cycles are often 15 years up, 15 years down in duration. I'm talking about the profitability cycle, not necessarily oil prices, which are more jagged than that. How do you figure out when your basic business environment is changing in a dramatic way and not just the normal noise? And I think, again, Exxon has a 125-year history of doing that really well, and now a 10-year track record of not being so good at it. It's what I've always spent all my time trying to do as an analyst, is trying to figure out, are we just in the normal ups and downs or is something fundamentally changing? I think right now for the oil business, we're at the end of a 15-year downturn of return on capital. 1990 to 2006, we were up. 2006 to 2020, we were at the bottom. And I actually think 2021 will be the first year of a decent uptick in returns on capital for the sector broadly, and that that cycle can last 10 years, perhaps boosted by all the ESG and climate concerns, which are legitimate concerns. I'm in no way trying to minimize the seriousness and need to take both of those things seriously. I just suspect the pressure on oil supply in terms of not allowing it to grow will come faster than any adjustments to demand, and that will help this profitability cycle. So it sounds like if you're a builder, it's pay attention to the changing season environment that you're in. It's constantly questioning what are my core assumptions? And what are the voices I listen to? There's a real ability to only listen to people who think like you, who have your same background. Um, how do you get away from confirmation bias? How do you get away from recency bias? How do you continue to seek out divergent views? Doesn't mean they're right and they could all be wrong. I think you have to constantly challenge your assumptions and be willing to say, how can things be very different? What are the two or three things that can cause them to be three standard deviations, better or worse? than what my base case is. And I think you have to have a, just a constant paranoia about that while still trying to make it through this year, this quarter, and so forth. What about for investors? What's the lesson here for folks sitting in the analyst chair? Unsurprisingly, right now, after a 15-year period of oil profitability has been bad, growth stocks have worked, inflation's been low, I think you have to say, are we at the end of that cycle? Is something changing about the inflation outlook? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. There's some really 
Uh, I love Macro Voices podcast, which is some good inflationary, deflationary debates coming that you can hear about. It's one of the big considerations. Is there something about GDP growth that's going to get out of this malaise environment where value stocks, again, have a chance? I think these are the types of things people should be looking at, some of these key core macro drivers. We've been in a pretty good period here. I love tech as much as anyone. I use it extensively. I hope it never goes away and only gets better. But again, I think you got to follow the profits. I think we're at the start of a profitability cycle for some of these forgotten businesses in the commodity space. And I would encourage people to at least do the work to figure out whether there is some sustainability to this. Is the generalizable lesson there, I guess, paying attention to the cycles, the broader cycles that all these companies exist in? The commodity cycles tend to be longer term in nature and again, measured in decades. Look, in 2008, when things were booming, it felt like that was going to last forever. I mean, China, frankly, has continued to grow since 2008, but that's been unhelpful to any commodity producer because the business companies overinvested and demand on the margin slowed, even though it's still on an absolute basis has grown. And so there were some important changes that caused the cycle to turn over what's now uh, almost 13, 14 years ago. Are we at another one of those inflection points? It's what I would encourage people to spend their time looking at. Are we at an inflection here? And for someone who's loved the story of ExxonMobil and wants to go deeper and get some further study, where would you guide them to? I mean, there's still the classic books. One is written by my friend Dan Jurgen called The Prize. It is really a history of the oil business. It was written probably 30 years ago now. It is still the oil book to read. And certainly anyone new to the space, you'll get a great sense of the history, but you'll also see a lot of commonalities. There's constantly a question of, are we at the end of the age of oil? That's been asked many, many times before. There's classically over-optimism or over-pessimism, as the case may be. I think the other book on Rockefeller is Titan. These are probably the two great books to read about the history of the oil business. Awesome. Arjun Murthy, thanks for the business breakdown of ExxonMobil. Jesse, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this business breakdown of ExxonMobil. It's rare to find a business with a track record that can be measured over a century. I'm fascinated to see what lies ahead for ExxonMobil and whether this empire can regain its positioning atop the oil and gas industry. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 